this is maybe something that Tim would say, but it's also what happens, what they try to do in the text. So if you start to feel some angst as I talk, just note that you are in good company with the people that are in our passage today. When Pastor Tim said that we were going through the book of Luke, I got really excited because my chapter, the community that I lead at the University of Oregon for college students, has just finished two years of going through the book of Luke together. And what I love about Luke's gospel is that at every turn, he's, he's revealing to us that the story of God is not for who we think it's for, and it doesn't reveal itself in the ways that we think that it should. Right? Luke's gospel reveals a picture of Jesus that's about repentance, right? like Tim talked about last week with John the Baptist, which is about turning our lives around to be able to receive and engage in the kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing. A kingdom where Jesus' people learn to follow Jesus as king in sacrificial love, living as good news to the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. So we're going to, so if you pull up that next slide, this is where we're going to sit today, is asking how do we be people who live in sacrificial love, living as good news to the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. Now, this is not the gospel that I hear in most, in most Christian settings, but it's the gospel that Jesus promotes in his life, one that isn't as much about where you go when you die, but, a how, but how to live the eternal type of life right now. It's about being transformed by Jesus in our day-to-day -day lives as we're together with people who are not like us. So last week, we checked, trekked through chapter 3, so can anybody guess what chapter we would be in this week? We're going to jump into chapter 4 together. But just before the text for today, a couple of strange things happen. One, Jesus himself, God, is baptized by a dude named John, and then he goes to the wilderness and is tempted by the devil for 40 days, and you thought that your January was long. And after not succumbing to Satan's offers of power, prestige, and glory, Jesus goes home and settles into his rhythm of going to the synagogue. And if you're not familiar with the text that we're looking at today, it's Jesus' inaugural address. It's his thesis statement. It's his first teaching. And there is a reason that inaugurations matter. They're supposed to tell you the character, the posture, and the, and the priorities of a new leader. It's not like this is something we're unfamiliar with right now. Jesus here is doing the same thing. He's giving his first sermon, his thesis statement, and a frame to understand what his whole ministry is going to be about. So let's look at the text together. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Fun fact before we move on, the, the line right after this is to declare the day of vengeance of our God, and Jesus just seems to leave that out. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. So Jesus nailed this sermon. Right? This is what every preacher wants to hear. The people were amazed and their eyes were fixed on him. But Jesus doesn't leave things as they are. They said, is, this not, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And at this point, if I'm in the service, I'm like, Jesus, stop. And you will say, do also hear in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. 
There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. When they heard all of this, get ready for a tone change, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off a cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is a strange story, y'all. Let's just note, too, that I think sometimes we try to sanitize scripture and make it, like, so easy to believe and to reconcile. This is weird stuff. Now, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever gone to a church service and been so mad that you collectively decided that you wanted to murder the preacher after a 15-second sermon and a nine-word interpretation? Jesus' two-sentence, 51-word sermon shakes up to his hometown so badly that they try to kill him almost immediately. Right? Jesus quotes a famous, ancient, a famous and ancient prophet named Isaiah to proclaim that he himself is good news to the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. And in this declaration, is, fulfill, is fulfilling a prophetic word. Jesus is essentially saying, hey, the time that you've been waiting for as a people is here right now. The thing that Isaiah talked about, I'm the one who's fulfilling that. This is what is happening right now. And often for us in Christian spaces, we tend to focus ourselves on Jesus' death and resurrection, which are incredibly important. But in Luke 4, Jesus is communicating something that he is about to do with his life. He's going to model this thing with his life. He's framing everything that he's going to do in explicit terms. This isn't just, just love people and love God, or read the scriptures every day, or pray to start your mornings. Not that those things are bad, but oftentimes our spirituality is reduced to obligatory solo activity, rather than having our whole lives transformed in relationship to each other. And it's interesting to me that nothing that Jesus quotes from Isaiah is internally oriented. It's a proclamation of things that Jesus is going to do on behalf of others. Jesus believes that he is proclaiming good news, and that as such, he himself is good news. So what is the news that he's proclaiming? The good news is that Jesus has been anointed to proclaim several things. Good news to the poor, release for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus claims that his identity is one of fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy as the Messiah. He is good news. And he is good news to specific people. The poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. I'm going to keep repeating that over and over again because it's what Jesus says. <laughs> but I have been in church contexts long enough and Western contexts long enough to know that we do some Simone Biles gold medalist levels of gymnastics when we look at the text and at the Bible. And in this, I think that we want to do something really twisty that I bet you have seen or done before and that I have seen and done before which is to reduce this immediately to being about the spiritually poor, the spiritually oppressed, and the spiritual prisoner. And if I were to ask any of us what that actually meant, I don't know that you could give me a very cohesive response, because it's so vague and ethereal and just tends to pull us out of being responsible for the actual people that Jesus is talking about here. But regardless of our Western context, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus in this Isaiah text are not talking about the spiritually poor. He's talking about people who need resources, who need freedom, and who need healing. Like these people need good news that changes their lived conditions in their day-to-day -day lives, and not just in some ethereal future they live. So if Jesus isn't being metaphorical here, what is he talking about? 
who are the poor prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed? So I'm just going to do a quick survey of who those people are. But as I share who these people are, I want you to have uh, the posture of asking, who are these people in my context? Who are these people at my work, in my city, in the places that I go? Because this isn't just something that Jesus was saying 2,000 years ago to this group of people in the synagogue. It's something that he's inviting us to reflect on, too. So the poor. This is literally the beggar, the monetarily poor, the helpless, those lacking basic necessities. They are at the bottom of society, and depending on circumstances, they are both figuratively and literally pushed to the margins of society. Who might these people be in our society and in our neighborhoods? The prisoners. In Jesus' time, he's talking about debtors' prisoners, so folks who are in prison until your family could pay back the loan that you took out. And many became increasingly poor in this debtors' prison cycle and were almost never able to get out of it. So the system itself made it so that people, once they were incarcerated, could not get out of of the process of incarceration. Who might these people be in our society, in our neighborhoods, and in our city? Now, release in the Greek um, has two meanings that we see throughout the Gospels. So I want to share both of them because I think that Jesus is referring to both of them. One, it means physical release, right, from prison, as it says. And the other one is a reference to the forgiveness of sins. Right, this is prisoners both in the literal sense, folks who are stuck in cycles of socioeconomic oppression, and those who are under spiritual oppression. And I want to note and be careful not to say that spiritual oppression is just some, again, ethereal thing out there that's done by spiritual beings, but that religious institutions themselves create the context and reality of oppression and spiritual bondage that people need release and healing from. That is to say that sometimes religious institutions like ours are the problem. In our society, it is often women, people of color, and folks in the LGBTQ plus community that know this reality quite intimately. So I just want to say, if you're a person in the room who has been hurt by the church before, I just want to affirm your courage to be in the room. Spiritual trauma is no joke, and it takes a certain amount of courage and bravery to be in a space around people that have maybe hurt you in the past, so I just want to say that you're welcome um, in a special way, because Jesus would welcome you in a special way. But moving on. The blind. In antiquity, people believed that the blind and folks with other physical conditions were suffering physical were suffering these physical repercussions because of sin, either intergenerationally or in their own lives. Right? People would avoid these folks, believing that they were a manifestation of sin in their own bodies. And then the oppressed. These are folks without power. Right? They are the unheard, the orphan, the widow, and the uncared for elderly. Right? The folks that we're actually giving to in our mission focus this month, which is awesome. Right? These people have a commonality. It is that all of these folks lack power. They are unheard, they are pushed to the margins of society, and they are exploited. They've been stripped of their identities as people who bear the full image of God. Right? These folks are victims of oppressive systems and structures that holistically and continually disadvantage some privilege others, and rob all of our dignity and humanity. This is who Jesus is talking about in his first sermon. And I rarely hear sermons like this in churches, because when these kind of sermons are preached, they're called too political or said to be perpetuating an agenda. But the reality is, Jesus is perpetuating an agenda. And this agenda is centered around the people in the farthest margins of society. And what is surprising to me about this story is that 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 at this point, the people totally love what Jesus is saying. They're amazed by it. 
the cliff murder situation doesn't happen until a little bit later. They actually believe that what Jesus is saying is good news. Right? If Jesus is the Messiah and he's actually bringing what he says he's bringing, they're ready. They want this good news. Right? Jesus says that he's coming to bring good news. To announce the reign of a kingdom where the community, our community and that community, work to make sure that the poor are taken care of. This is socioeconomic justice. It's a critique and restructuring of economic forces and practices that make it so that people are poor and asks us as a community to make sure that the poor among us are not poor. Jesus, in initiating his reign as king, is proclaiming release for the prisoners and freedom for the oppressed. This is a social restructuring to address <coughs> the systemic and structural injustices that have, incar have incarcerated and oppressed the people without power, bringing them freedom and justice. And it's no surprise to me that Jesus starts with religious institutions or the religious institution closest to his home and of the day. I think oftentimes in Christian community, we are prone to judging other people's nonsense or oppression without looking at our own, and Jesus starts with his people. So we should keep that in mind. Then Jesus says he's bringing recovery of, the, of sight to the blind. This is a spiritual restructuring, a physical and spiritual restoration to heal and break down evil strongholds. And I love that Jesus isn't just concerned in a single issue or a single thing. It's the intersection of the spiritual and the physical. They are not divorced from each other. And he ends this all by saying this statement that the people of the time would have understood, so that will take a little unpacking for us, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is an explicit reference to a concept in Leviticus 5, 25 called the year of the Jubilee. So we're going to nerd on, out on that for just a little bit because I'm a nerd and I want to, and I'm standing right here and you have to go for it. So, right, God commanded the people to take a year every 50 years to have a festival. The Sabbath, right, is a day of rest to worship God and to remember that God is God and that we are not the product uh, of our work and our value is not found in just what we do. Some of us need to hear that today. Your value is not just in what you do or what you produce. Jesus believes that too. He gives us the Sabbath so we can remember that. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And the year of Jubilee is like a Sabbath of the Sabbaths. It's a festival of freedom, economic justice, and of worship. During the year of Jubilee, get this, every slave was set free. Every debt that people had was canceled, and all land went back to its original owners. Essentially, every 50 years, it's as though a giant reset button was pushed, breaking the oppression of the people and leveling the playing field. Can you imagine? If every 50 years, everyone had to start over, what would that do? I think it would minimize our exploitation of the poor, I think it would keep us from accumulating stuff in the way that we do, especially in the United States. But our world is so steeped in consumerism, materialism, and meritocracy that I'm not sure our brains can even conceptualize the thing that God dreamed for his people. And it turns out that the people didn't either because Israel is actually never uh, recorded having done this thing. This is a primary command, and they didn't do it, not once. Right, the year of Jubilee was supposed to be, first and foremost, a way that the nation of Israel could be marked as a people different from other nations, as people who followed Yahweh as God. The year of Jubilee was a covenant between God and his people. It's a spiritual restructuring of society and a kind of communal symbol of repentance for the ways that the people, that the people would have exploited the poor and the vulnerable. It gives them a moment to reset. It's an opportunity to rest, 
to celebrate and to worship God for his provision and his sovereignty. I wonder how many of us today need to learn better disciplines of rest, celebration, and worship for our own day-to-day lives. But Jesus is likening his ministry, what he's going to do and what he's going to be about, to the year of Jubilee. I love that when Jesus shows up and talks about what his reign is going to be like, he describes it as a party. This is not the first time or the last time that Jesus does that. His first sign is turning water into wine. Jesus is always likening his story to a party. But what happens when we choose out of that? Um, Because we don't necessarily like, see, or believe the people around us. I wonder in the United States what it would be like to have something reset every 49 years. Imagine injustice and oppression in our midst having been reset nearly five times at this point if we had followed this command. We would actually be nearing a jubilee in the next decade. But Jesus is saying to the people, I want a reset. And he's saying, I want a reset because what you are doing right now is not what I'm like. Again, Israel never did it, and I don't think that we have either. But under Jesus' lordship, we have to know that there's a convergence of who he is as demonstrated in the year of jubilee, where he brings socioeconomic, social, and spiritual justice, restoration, and freedom. I mean, look at who Jesus is. When, if I were God, I think I would show up um, as an adult, not a vulnerable baby. I think I would show up with power, maybe force. But Jesus doesn't. He shows up as a marginalized person. He was poor and lived the struggle. He was an ethnic minority as a Jewish man in the Roman Empire. He's a Galilean, so even in terms of Jewishness, he's on the margins of society. He was born to an unwed teenage mother. His family fled to Egypt as refugees because of Herod's infanticide. Like, Jesus had a a violent backdrop to his life. He was a marginalized person. And let's remember in our story that Jesus is in his hometown, so the people know all of this about him. But he's trying to bring an all-encompassing, holistic restoration to the people. Even if we look at a brief survey of Jesus' ministry, we can see that he sides with and is centered around the marginalized. He talks to a Samaritan woman at a well and reveals himself to her as living water. He heals a bleeding woman, bringing her private sickness and shame into the center of the people's attention and publicly restores her health and her dignity. He heals sick people with skin diseases by touching them. He heals blind Bartimaeus, even though Jesus' own disciples shush him and try to keep him from healing. And he frees demoniacs who are suffering under oppression uh, by pretty much ruining the economy of a local city. Over and over again, Jesus ministers to people who are ostracized, hated, neglected, ignored, unseen, or considered dirty. Who might these people be in our society? And all along the way, he's not being vague. He brings critiques, both subtle and explicitly, that the systems that the people are operating in create an oppression, wow, create and perpetuate these oppressive realities. And again, let's name that this sermon starts super well. They're amazed and in awe. I would step off the stage right now. But Jesus seems to see in their response that they don't fully get what he's doing. And if I, again, if I were Jesus, I wouldn't be as clear as he is right now. So we'll go back to the text for just a minute. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. We never said that. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you do. Turn around. And then he tells these two stories. 
So let's dig in for just a second before we finish up on why the Jews sitting in the synagogue in Nazareth get so mad that they want to kill Jesus. I don't think I've ever been that mad at anybody. But what we have to do is to consider the stories that tell them and what would make the people so mad. We have to consider that Jesus didn't bring up Moses or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any heroes of the faith. Instead, he centers on well-known stories of marginalized people that were also their enemies. In the first story, the story of the widow in Zarephath, a terrible famine hits Israel, and Elijah the prophet is expected to go to Israel's most poor and vulnerable. But instead, he travels well out of his way to reach a marginalized woman from their enemy's territory. And then in the story of Naaman the Syrian, the Gentile, he's a Gentile leper, so he's a sick person. He would be considered unclean, he would be considered unspiritual, and he's a part of their national enemy. He's healed over Israelites of his leprosy in a public way. In both stories, the people encountered the miraculous provision of God, and neither of them are Jewish people. They're from Sidon and Syria, places that Israel hated. Jesus essentially is saying that instead of doing in his hometown what he's doing for their neighbors, that these good temple-attending Jews have no special hold on the thing that Jesus is doing. Further, he's offering this good thing, this good news, to the people that they hate. Right? I think about how mad we get or frustrated we get when we think that someone gets something that they don't deserve that we deserve. That's what's happening for the Jews right now. So even though the Israelites were in fact the people of God, their disobedience and idolatry had resulted in the power of God moving to other people in these two stories. So even though Jesus identifies with those on the margins, and his audience is among the most marginalized, Jesus drops a warning to them in his hometown about their inherent entitlement and expectation of who God's goodness is for. I assume that we as a community have expectations about who God's goodness and good news is for. Right? They get mad and they want to kill Jesus because the power of God moved on from the Israelites when they failed to respond to the authority of God. They love the good news when they believe it is about them, but they literally want to kill the embodiment of the good news when they realize that they have no special hold on it. Jesus is making it clear that he is, declaring that, or that he is saying that he is Lord and that his lordship is bigger than enemy hate and exclusivity. It's bigger than retributive justice, and it's more than him just saving your souls. Jesus as Lord is socioeconomic and social and spiritual. It's a restructuring of all of those things to make everything new in his creation. Right, the people in Nazareth in this day expected something out of Jesus as the Messiah. They were waiting for him to validate and affirm what they wanted from him. But when Jesus is Lord, it requires us to follow him as good news for the poor, for the prisoner, for the blind, and the oppressed. Right, these are the people that we straight up don't want to be around. Or that our politics would tell us are not worthy of dignity or the image of God in us being the image of God in them. And so these people miss out on the good news of Jesus' lordship and immediately try to throw him off a cliff. This is intense, and I think we should feel the intensity of it. Because I wonder if some of us have some cliff-throwing murder spirit in us. Historically, the church has done what the people in the story do. Right When God says that he wants to reach people outside of our communities or, or our expectations, that he wants to reach the most marginalized, the most rejected, the people that we consider useless, that we get a little bit sensitive about it. I'm always asking questions about this on campus. Because for me, it's a question of access. 
It can say that people not having access to resources, food and water and all of those things is an injustice. But I'm always asking the question, who doesn't have access to the kingdom of God on campus because of who they are? I'm asking that all the time, and I think that we have to ask that in our communities. And this is super humbling, because for me, it looks like taking a look at my community here and on campus and asking who is not in the room and why. What keeps people from being able to be here with their full identity? I have to ask whether LGBTQ-identifying students have access to Christian communities that loves them. I have to ask if students of color have spaces of worship where they don't have to check their identities at the door to come. I have to then use my money and my community's money and invite my students to reallocate our resources to make sure that everyone is taken care of regardless of the reasons why they're poor. Notice in Jesus' sermon, he doesn't give any judgment of why people are the way they are. He just says he's good news to them. He doesn't add conditions to the good news. He just says that he is doing it. And my hope and prayer for us as a community is that we wouldn't just know more about injustice or the marginalized, that we wouldn't just have more language about who is on the margins and what they're experiencing. I would rather us be a community that lives justly and loves mercy and walks humbly with Jesus than be people who can spit off perfect theology. Because we all know the person who's a total jerk but who can say the right things about Jesus but doesn't live anything like him. I don't want us to be that community. My hope is that we would be transformed by Jesus in our day-to-day while we're with people in the margins, not just thinking about and talking about them. That we would find the most marginalized, the most outcast in our schools and in our cities and in our campus and in our jobs and on our campuses. And that again, we would be able to say to people, the image of God in me meets the image of God in you. Come and be a part of what God is doing. Come and be a part of this eternal kind of life that is starting right now. Right, I hope that we would be people who say yes to God's invitation to follow him into places of pain and suffering, to places of poverty, to places where injustice reigns. Because Luke 4 isn't just the thesis statement to Jesus' ministry, it is the full embodiment of who he is. And as his followers, this has implications for who we are and what our lives should be like. I've learned this lesson um, over the last seven years in a lot of ways, but I'm just going to share one this morning um, for the sake of time. Um, But as I think about people who are cast out on the margins, I think about folks with developmental disabilities often. Some of you might be wondering why I have this this on my hip. Um, It's not just because I'm super fashionable, which uh, is not a thing. Um, But this was a gift to me from a woman named Deborah at Larsh Farms in Tacoma. And Larsh Farms is a community where folks with, with and without developmental disabilities learn how to live together and be mutually transformed by just by greeting each other's humanity. The community is incredible. It's a sustainable farm where folks come just as they are, give what they can, and are transformed as we are together. I've never been to a place like this. And I take students there for a summer internship every year. And what ends up happening is, to be honest, most college students don't know anything about farming. I know some, but not much. And so as I show up to large, large watching people with and without disabilities, working together, doing good work and loving each other well, I also realize that I have a lot to learn from the people who are so margin from people who are so marginalized in our society. My friend Deborah made this. Um, she also makes paper and does really, really great work transplanting peppers and tomatoes and things like that. And I love that when I bring students and myself to the farm, that Misha, a deaf mute woman, has to teach us how to transplant peppers because we don't know how. I love that when students are pulling up grass, screaming, let's 
that she takes a shovel, slams it into the ground, looks at us, points down, and just judges us because we should be judged for not knowing how to do this thing. I love that I get to experience the least being cursed at large farms. And I wouldn't experience that if I didn't show up, if I didn't find places where the marginalized were, and I didn't affirm the, the humanity of people who are not like me above my own. Right? I want to be a person, and I want us to be a community who makes known God's goodness through being with people that society pushes out. And again, this isn't new to us. So my invitation for us as a community is to open our eyes to pay attention, to stop walking past or crossing the street from people who we don't think fit in our worlds or in the world of what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus says that this thing is for him. And so as I pray for us, I want to, I want to pray that we would be a community who, like Jesus, brings good news and invites his reign on earth. And that means that he has something to say about the dignity of black lives, about the LGBTQ community, about the poor, about our Muslim brothers and sisters and family. Again, this is where Jesus centers his life. So I'm going to pray that we would too. Jesus, thank you that you take out the guesswork in following you. That when we ask where you're inviting us to go, you tell us that it is to the most marginalized. And that it is in finding the most marginalized that we find you because you are already there. So would we be people who go out and find you in our week-to-week and our day-to-day lives and find that we are mutually transformed by being with people in the margins who we associate with, love, and social Amen. Hopefully there's no cliff throwing now. Um, So as you go today, uh, yeah, go in peace. Remember, there's no 4 o'clock service tonight, so don't show up because there will be football happening in other places where you can go. Have a good day, guys.